All right, thanks very much, uh, uh, Mike. And again, this uh, meeting has characteristically had a lot of government employees from the FDA, from NIH, but it really is wonderful to see that uh, with a virtual course, we've been able to expand our uh, our audience, and uh, uh, I think that makes a much more vital course. So what we're going to start with, usually I start with focusing on uh, opportunistic infections, but I'm going to broaden that a little bit this time, but start out with uh, what's happening in the city where this uh, for, for 27 of the 28 years occurred, Washington, D.C. Uh, I don't have any relevant financial issues. Uh, the learning objectives are to focus on the data from D.C., to list newly described issues. I'm going to focus on health disparities and comorbidities uh, and to uh, talk about some uh, uh, issues related to, uh, to uh, opportunity infections. For many years, we've in Washington had really a lot of cooperative efforts focusing on the HIV problem that we have. And just to remind you, uh, we were late in the game of getting organized for HIV. It wasn't until 2007 when a new administration came in to the city that we actually looked at the data about HIV. And I think it probably was not a surprise, but it was important to document that Washington had the highest rate of HIV of any place uh, in the, of any metropolitan area in the country. So that NIH, the universities, uh, the District of Columbia Department of Health, which had new leadership, got together with the GW School of Public Health. And over the last 12 years, have really worked together in a cohesive, cooperative way that had not existed before 2007. So one of the questions I would ask you, and this might be mostly for people who live in D.C., is how many new cases of HIV do you think were reported in 2019? The mayor issued a report relatively recently that summarized 2019. But what order of magnitude do you think this is? So why don't you start uh, uh, polling and just think, how far have we come? And I'll give you a hint that uh, in 2007, we had 1,300 cases. Uh, in that year. Okay, so there's a range of people, and uh, actually um, uh, 42% uh, got uh, what is the right answer. So if you look at the data, uh, what this graph shows is uh, the blue bars are the number of people living with HIV, which has gone up to 18,000 because people are obviously both acquiring HIV and living longer. Uh, the green line shows the number of deaths, but what I'd really like to focus on is the red line, which is the number of new cases. And in 2007, when we started working uh, cooperatively, there were about 1,300 new cases. And I think we've been very pleased that uh, over the last uh, 10 years, we've gone from 1,300 to last year, there were about 275 new cases in the district. And we have looked at the rate of decline in the 50 uh, CDC-defined hotspots in the United States, and D.C. has had the largest decline of any area in the country. And again, I think this reflects a lot of cooperative effort uh, in a city that had a huge problem uh, and still has a problem, but much less. The mayor of D.C. Uh, has 
goals which mirror what CDC has. And if you look over on the right, uh, that shows what her goals were uh, in terms of where we should be in 2020. And I think what I want to show you here is that these were very ambitious goals in 2015, but I think that we're very close to being able to get to those targets in 2020. We will, in fact, not know the 2020 data until sometime in the second quarter of 2021. But you can see in terms of uh, having most patients know their HIV positive results, in terms of uh, having patients who are suppressed uh, on treatment, uh, and seeing the number of new cases uh, uh, in terms of targets, I think we're very close to those goals. And I think if you had looked in 2015 and said, uh, do we think we're going to get to those goals? I think uh, many of us would have been pessimistic. But again, I think this is really dramatic and reflects a lot of effort in the city as well as help from CDC and other federal agencies. It's important to recognize that in D.C., one in four of our uh, newly diagnosed patients are black women. Two in five are non-Caucasian males who have sex with males. There are a lot of younger people, and there are many who can be identified because they've had at least one sexually transmitted uh, uh, infection in the last 12 months. So these are the patients that we, or these are the individuals we have to focus on, the patient populations. I think there are more projects now trying to focus on who are the new cases, who is out of care, particularly people who have substance use disorder, people who have, uh, who are homeless, uh, uh, people without insurance, and to try to get access to them so that we can get that number from 275 new cases uh, to the aspirational goal of zero uh, and try to get the people who know they have HIV to uh, be durably suppressed. So I think we're making progress, but we still have some populations that we know that we have to target. So from ID Week, I'd like to tell you about a couple of presentations that I thought were notable on health disparities and on the aging population. Uh, I was going to talk about PrEP, but uh, Monica Gandhi is going to uh, do that. And I'll talk to a little bit about opportunistic infections because I never let an opportunity go by without talking about them. One of the talks at ID Week that I thought was particularly powerful was by Ada Adamora, who's talked at IAS USA uh, many times before. And her cast lecture was entitled, All Policy is Health Policy, A Pathway to HIV and COVID-19. She went back to recall her experiences uh, in uh, the 1980s when she was a fellow at Einstein. And like everybody else, you recognize that the number of sexual partners that patients had was a risk factor for HIV transmission. But her personal observation was that in minority populations, high-risk behavior was not invariably a factor. There are patients who did not have high-risk behavior who still got HIV, and that very early on, it was very clear to her that poverty and race appeared to be risk factors for HIV. But that began a career uh, in which she tried to uh, establish data on how often were poverty and uh, race issues and why did this happen. She focused on a number of different things, but one was something I think we see in the news a lot, mass incarceration. And I think we all recognize that there are way too many people incarcerated that there's been a huge increase since the 1980s and that the lifetime risk of incarceration 
uh, is much greater in non-Caucasian uh, populations, as you see here among Latinos and Blacks. She made a number of observations. One is with all of these Black males being incarcerated for periods of time, this leads to unstable families, unstable finances, and with sexual partners being unavailable and in prison, this leads to concurrency by both those in prison and out, and that leads to, uh, obviously, uh, uh, potential for uh, uh, HIV transmission. She also focused on the fact that having people incarcerated, whether they're in jails or prisons, often due to the nature of our healthcare system, leads to transitions that uh, exacerbate uh, gaps in care where their uh, regimens in pr- uh, outside of prison are not continued in prison and vice versa. And this leads to more HIV-positive individuals uh, being able to transmit than should ca- uh, sh- that should happen. And she made, I think, the very good point that we see data about uh, people who have been incarcerated for felonies not being able to vote or not being able to vote unless they pay various fines that they have. And she made, I think, the very compelling point that if these people were able to vote, that the results of some elections like Gore uh, versus Bush would have been changed if they were able to vote and if they voted, because there's such a substantial number that they could change uh, government policy with their votes if we allowed them to vote, but in many areas of the country, we don't. She also made a point, which I'm sure is obvious to all of us, that the federal government has plans to end the U.S. HIV epidemic. They focus on things that are well known to us on diagnosis, treatment, and prevention. But the problem is, if you don't have health insurance, yes, there are services in Ryan White clinics and so on, but it makes it much difficult, much more difficult to uh, uh, to get access to those services. There are states that we all recognize that have not adopted Medicaid expansion. They're shown here in yellow. And she makes the point that, uh, again, policy related to criminal justice, policy related to budget, all ultimately affects healthcare policy. And again, this gets back to a major theme that all policy is health policy. She drew some parallels to COVID-19. And again, I think these are issues that are well known to the group here, uh, that black people are dying of COVID-19 at twice the rate of white people. The, there's some data shown uh, here. Uh, about uh, deaths per 100,000. And she made the interesting points that the issue isn't so much that once they get into the hospital, they're more likely to die. The problem is that because of comorbidities, uh, because of lack of access to care, they're hospitalized much more often. Uh, and although, again, their trajectory is no different once they get into the hospital, a higher proportion are hospitalized, and thus a higher proportion wind up dying. And this is particularly uh, notable in uh, states that do not have Medicaid expansion. So again, I think this was a very powerful talk and one that if you have access to ID Week is worth listening to. So the bottom line was that racial inequities of HIV and COVID-19 are not inevitable. They're a result of social, economic, and political forces that we can do something about. The changes are not just in healthcare policy, but they're in the criminal justice system and in healthcare insurance as well. And that while this isn't going to reverse the changes, uh, the effects of centuries of racial injustice, they will improve the lives of many people who are currently here. Another talk that I thought was interesting was by Carrie Altoff of Johns Hopkins, 
uh, and of NA Accord, and that was a focus on the aging of an epidemic, which I think all care providers recognize. She focused on three main issues that influence aging. And again, I don't think any of these are a surprise to us, but I think it was an interesting way to look at it. One limb was the effect of HIV and uh, viremian inflammation, an immune activation on causing accelerated end organ uh, damage uh, uh, and uh, morbidity. A second arm was effective drugs, the older drugs that we don't use anymore, the D drugs, but which some patients uh, are still uh, uh, suffering uh, from the effects of, as well as newer drugs like the integrase inhibitors that affect uh, body mass. And then the issues which are overrepresented in HIV, smoking, stress, diet, food instability, uh, lack of exercise, and the neighborhood you live in in terms of uh, your access to health care or healthy food. She pointed out data from Kaiser uh, Permanente that there are really two issues we should look at. One is overall survival. I think we recognize that if you look at overall survival, uh, patients with HIV are catching up to non-infected patients. So you can see the y-axis here looks at the time remaining for 21-year-olds, how long they're expected to live, and you can see there's a uh, six or seven-year difference. But what she wanted to focus on was really your uh, years of healthy living, your level, your years where you were free of major comorbidities. And you can see that that is a much smaller number than simply being alive. And that there's a larger gap between HIV and non-HIV. So her focus was what she called the health span disparity. And that is that we really need to focus more on all the issues which cause aging, uh, uh, and that are the comorbidities, that our goal should be to delay the onset of aging by focusing on not just HIV, but on smoking, on lack of exercise, on diet, etc., cetera, uh, and that we really would like to get uh, to uh, focus on how they can have a healthier life uh, without comorbidity uh, before death. So again, focusing on wellness uh, as well as mortality. So I think, again, that was an interesting concept that is worth looking at. There's also an interesting uh, uh, um, uh, presentation on HIV reservoir. And I have to say, uh, I was not initially going to talk about the HIV reservoir, uh, but when Raj Gandhi heard that his sister was getting a major opportunity to present her data here. He called me and said that coming from the East Coast, he should get equal time, so I should present some of his data. So it's largely because of that that I'm presenting this. But this was a presentation that was very interesting on the selective decay of intact HIV proviral DNA by antiretroviral therapy. And the issue here was whether antiretroviral therapy really has an effect on the viral reservoir. This is obviously relevant to cure. They looked at a convenience uh, uh, sample of 50 patients, and you can see that some of the uh, uh, patients uh, they had uh, uh, data on at time point one, uh, some at time point two, some at time point three. So this was not really necessarily a comprehensive look at a predetermined uh, group, but I think it nevertheless provides interesting data. And while there is a lot of issue about intact and defective uh, uh, proviruses, if you looked at intact proviruses, which is a 
uh, one indicator of viral reservoir, you can see that over the three time points, the uh, viral reservoir appeared to go down. So this was good news that antiretroviral uh, therapy does, in fact, appear to reduce the viral reservoir, and this ultimately has implications for HIV cure. So again, I think this was uh, interesting uh, science uh, that was done at IDV Week. So at ID Week, I was looking for um, uh, other material on uh, opportunistic infections, uh, and I have to say there was not a lot to present. Uh, at this meeting in the past, I've talked about uh, beta-D-glucan, uh, and uh, there are some speakers at ISA USA that are more enthusiastic about the use of beta-D-glucan, particularly for the diagnosis of uh, uh, pneumocystis than I am. There are two interesting presentations that I'm not going to show you the data on uh, showing that uh, beta-D-glucans are elevated as frequently in histoplasmosis as in uh, pneumocystis. So if you're uh, practicing an area with histo, this is a particular overlap with beta-glucans, and obviously beta-glucans are up uh, with a variety of yeasts and molds. And there's also another interesting presentation from Arkansas showing the high morbidity uh, of disseminated histoplasma, part of which is due to the fact that it's often not diagnosed promptly. So again, the bottom line to me was that beta-glucans can sometimes give a hint that patients have pulmonary disease due to fungus, but it doesn't really tell you which one. And there are many other causes of false positives, false negatives. So I've never been enthusiastic about being uh, about using uh, beta-D-glucan as a pulmonary diagnostic. I think there were at least two poster presentations supporting that. There are quite a few presentations on co-infection of HIV and COVID-19. And again, without going into the data, I think it uh, uh, probably is obvious to everybody in this room uh, that if you have a patient with HIV in this era, you have to wonder whether their pulmonary infiltration or their fever or their GI uh, illness might be due to COVID-19 and make sure they're screened. And conversely, patients with COVID-19 may have HIV, and there were uh, cases presented a patient with COVID-19 who had unrecognized HIV who presented with pneumocystis that at first was mistaken for COVID-19, but they actually had two processes going on. So again, I think this is something which infectious people are always cognizant of having more than one problem. Again, just a very uh, uh, concrete reminder of that. There are other interesting issues at other meetings and other venues, and TB and cryptococcal meningitis are two that are worth uh, talking about. Let me ask you another question, and the question relates to the treatment of latent TB, and the question is as follows. Which of the following is a preferred regimen for prevention of latent TB in people living with HIV who are either IGRA or PPD positive and are presumably not been previously treated? And again, we'll ignore drug-drug interactions or what antiretroviral regimen they're on at the moment. So why don't you look at these four options and uh, vote? And when Mike Sag is uh, doing this, he's going to tell you what the music is. Uh, I'm not going to tell you.
<laughs> well, that, that's interesting that uh, everybody has a little uh, different view. And you know, one thing I think people have to realize is that in my era, people of my uh, uh, vintage, uh, isonized it for six to nine months was always the preferred regimen for TB prophylaxis. And now it is not the preferred regimen, whether you're HIV positive or HIV negative. So there are two points I want to make here. One is, what are the preferred regimens? And then there's a lot of discussion about a one-month regimen. Uh, do we use that? And if not, why not? And just to remind you, uh, in terms of people living with HIV, there are two preferred choices. One is the so-called uh, 3HR, which is isonized and rifampin. So that is daily regimen or 90 doses of drug, and that's a three-month regimen. There is another three-month regimen, which is only 12 doses because it is weekly isonized, not with rifampin, but with rifapentin. So that is a recommended regimen, uh, except it's only recommended if you're on efavirenz, raltegravir, or dalutegravir, simply because there isn't good data and there are drug interaction uh, issues with other regimens. The rufamba daily regimen, which I'm not sure is used very often, is a recommended regimen if you're HIV negative, but is not a recommended regimen if you're HIV positive. So the non-recommended, or I should not say non-recommended, the alternative regimens, and I think when you see the OI guidelines, this is something which is being debated right now. But in the past, uh, isonized uh, daily was not recommended simply because compliance is uh, much lower with this than the three-month regimens that, uh, uh, that I mentioned. Uh, the rifampin daily regimen is uh, recommended if you're HIV negative, but is not recommended if you're HIV positive because of uh, drug interactions, among other things. So the question is, what's wrong with this four-week regimen of isonized and rifapentine? There's been a trial, which most of you have probably heard about, the BRIEF trial, which was an ACTG trial, in which they compared daily isonized for nine months. And again, you could argue between six and nine months, but this was isonized for nine months versus the 1-HP regimen, which is daily rifapentine and isonized for a month. So it has the advantage of being a very short regimen. This was a trial that was done all in all HIV patients. They had a relatively uh, high CD4 count, but this was not done uh, in... Uh, uh, the United States, only 50% of the patients were on antiretroviral therapy. This was done in high endemic TB areas. But it's interesting that because of the nature of the study, while it was a high endemic area, only 21% of the patients had a PPD that was recorded as being positive. Either they were negative or it wasn't done. So that while they lived in an endemic area, it wasn't clear that all of them had latent uh, disease. And we'll get into what the implication of that uh, is later. And there are a variety of endpoints uh, looked at that included confirmed and probable uh, TB, death TB, TB, but also included deaths uh, of unknown cause. And in this study, 3HP was in fact non-inferior. Uh, it had higher completion rate. 
So in many ways, it was a very attractive regimen. But I think one of the things that has caused some experts not to use it with HIV is that in this study, uh, the number of patients at risk was low. We only know that 21% had a positive PPD. Even though it was in a high endemic area, the number of cases of TB was low, and the relevance in the United States was uh, different, and only 50% of the patients were on antiretroviral therapy, uh, and this was mostly efavirenz and nivirapine. So at the moment, I think the guidelines are still wrestling with this, but this is likely to remain not a preferred option but an alternative regimen because of these issues uh, with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, way the study was conducted. And it is notable that if one is going to use it, uh, it's really only been studied within a Fabrins-based regimen, which is not obviously used here. There is a dolutegravir study, which is in progress. So you're likely to see more data on this regimen later. But right now, the message simply is this is still not uh, in the guidelines and while we wait to see what the next version of the guidelines shows, it is likely to remain not a recommended but an alternative regimen if you're on efavirenz. In terms of treatment of TB, uh, Sue Swindell, who's going to be on one of our panels, uh, uh, presented at a different meeting, uh, Union uh, of uh, TB, uh, this dose, which is looking for short-term regimens for the treatment of TB, not for prophylaxis for, for treatment of TB, and this was looking at combinations of high-dose rifapentine and moxifloxacin. This was a study that was done in the United States and at multiple sites abroad, and again, uh, doing this kind of study is an enormous amount of work, and I think Sue and her uh, team deserve a lot of credit for getting this done. And without going into all of the detail, if you look at the control group, uh, which is um, uh, uh, going to 26 weeks. The question is, could you shorten the course? And one short course, uh, uh, substitute rifapentine for rifampin, uh, and the question is, could you stop this at four months? The other arm, substitute rifapentine uh, for rifampin, but also added moxifloxacin. And the bottom line of this study was that simply switching to rifapentine and then stopping at two months, um, uh, I'm sorry, stopping at uh, four months uh, was not a satisfactory way of doing it. But if you added moxifloxacin, you could have a shorter regimen. So at this point, there are a number of different regimens. Uh, and I think uh, uh, unless you do a lot of TB, you need to look them up. But I think the implications of this study is that it's encouraging uh, that uh, uh, there are shorter course regimens. The moxifloxacin and rifapentine are powerful drugs that we should be using. And again, what was different about this is not only they use a shorter regimen, they also used uh, a higher dose of rifapentine instead of using uh, 600 or 1200 milligrams a week of rifapentine. This was daily rifapentine. I think we need more experience with rifapentine. We need to be cognizant of the drug interactions, particularly, as I mentioned before, we have more and more older patients uh, who are on polypharmacy. But I think I think this is good news that the duration of uh, both prophylactic and therapeutic regimens for TB is coming down. The last thing I want to mention 
our issues about cryptococcal meningitis. And there really have not been changes in our management of cryptococcal meningitis for a long period of time. For years, uh, the recommendations have been uh, what's shown here to use two weeks of liposomal amphotericin and flucytosine, uh, to follow this with eight weeks of fluconazole, 400 milligrams, and then two, uh, uh, um, a longer course of 200 milligrams of fluconazole. And one of the issues that has been, are there complications that could be avoided uh, with this regimen? If you used a higher dose of fluconazole, could you um, uh, avoid some of the treatment failures and some of the iris that's being seen? Now, one of the problems with um, opportunity infection management in 2020 is that there's almost no research being done in the United States. Most of the studies are being done outside the United States. And the question is always, how relevant are they? And there are debates as to how much treatment failure we're seeing in the United States with this regimen of fluconazole 400 and whether there is really a problem that needs to be solved. It clearly is a problem overseas. And the question is, would we benefit from raising the dose of fluconazole uh, in the consolidation range from 400 to 800. The argument goes as follows. If you look at the studies that go back to what Charlie Vanderhorst did in the 1990s, and you look at what are predictors of bad outcome, a positive CSF culture at two weeks is a predictor of bad outcome. So you'd like to avoid having a positive culture at two weeks, which we try to do by adding 5-FC to amphotericin, and if they're going to be positive, they either need a longer course of uh, amphotericin and flucytosine, or they need an effective, <coughs> uh, hopefully, fungus, uh, fungicidal drug. And often, you don't know the results of the culture for a week because it'll take a number of days or a week for cryptococcus to grow out. Now, the problem with fluconazole is that a dose of 400 milligrams is not fungicidal. At 800 milligrams, it probably is fungicidal in at least some people. Uh, a higher dose is well tolerated. And there is data from Africa suggesting that if you use 800 milligrams, your outcome is better for those who have a positive culture at their two-week LP and there's less iris. So based on this, there has been a hotly contested uh, debate as to whether in the United States where there isn't much data on poor outcomes with 400 milligrams. Whether we should take this well-tolerated drug, look at the data from Africa, and raise the consolidation from 400 to 800, I think we'll have to wait and see what the guidelines do, because I think there's been a lot of debate from David Bulwar and others about uh, the relevance of this data in the United States. But I think it's something to at least keep in mind. So, should we increase the consolidation 400 to 800? Again, the recommendations may change. We'll have to see. So with that, I've given you a quick tour of D.C., a quick tour of ID week, <coughs> and a few comments about other things that are relevant. I'd be happy for Mike Sag to uh, pepper me with questions. Great. Thank you so much, Henry. That was a really nice overview <laughs> and a lot of important uh, updates and new things. So we got a lot of questions. Let's just dig right in. So uh, first question uh, is about how much neighborhood level geocoding data does the D.C. Department of Health have on persons with new diagnosis? And is that changing? 
they do have data. I mean, they're very focused on exactly where the data uh, comes from. Um, uh, whether that's changing, uh, I actually don't, I'm not aware of the, of the granularity of that data. But if you look at where the uh, cases come from, the D.C. Uh, report they published, uh, the zip codes uh, and the uh, communities where that's coming from appear not to be very different from what they were 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, there was a little bit of confusion about the 3HP or the uh, INH with rifapentin or 1HP. Uh, s- some of the bullet points might have been a little conflicting, at least uh, as it came across. So the, the next question sort of summarized. At the end of the day, what is the recommendation for a PPD-positive, HIV-positive person in the United States or in, in uh or just around the world, what, what would you say are the, is it, what you would you do, I guess, is the bottom line. So I, I guess I would use one of the three-month regimens, either isoniazid and rifampin or rifapentin uh, and uh, isoniazid. Um, uh, and again, one is a daily, one is a uh, uh, weekly, but I would use uh, uh, one of those two regimens. I think isoniazid is a good regimen if you think your patient will uh, be adherent. Yeah. And maybe weekly observed therapy might be a way to go since it's, what, 12 doses, if I remember right? 12 weeks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's a possibility. Um, switching over to cryptococcus, um, what about cryptococcal antigen and follow-up? And I can <laughs> contribute to this one. This goes back to my early days. I was going to say, I, I, I'll, uh, uh, I'll defer that to you because I think that according to the Mike Sag that I've read about, uh, uh, following that is not useful. And I have to say, it makes one nervous if the cryptococcal antigen is going up. Uh, I'm not sure it should make you nervous if it is simply stable and going down, but tell us what your... Yeah, so this was a study back in the early 90s, and it was published by Bill Powderly as a lead author, uh, where the study that we had originally done on treatment with amphotericin B, 5-FC versus fluconazole were the two-week lead-in with the amphob and 5-FC kind of won the day. Um, the serum antigen did not help. It did not predict relapse. It did not mean much of anything. So following a serum cryptoantigen, it, it would either stay flat, sometimes go up, sometimes go down, but rarely ever went away. Now, the CSF cryptoantigen is quite helpful because if you, it, but the problem is you have to monitor it over time. So in the study where we were doing frequent LPs, we would see it come down pretty universally with treatment. And if somebody appeared to relapse, it would go back up. But at the end of the day, the culture is the gold standard. So following cryptococcal antigen is not something we recommend very much for those reasons. Um, Next question is about uh, a short course. Sorry, it jumped on me. Um, any suggestion that patients with HIV are more likely to have severe COVID or higher mortality? Um, that's, I guess, from Raj's, no, Raj's study. Raj's talked about a lot of this, but do you have any sense of that uh, right now? Whether COVID is more severe in HIV? Right. I'm not aware of any data that that's the case. I'd be interested if you know of any, but I think no. there's been a lot of discussion about that. Well, uh, and, and, and Dr. Gandhi, uh, Monica Gandhi, uh, will be getting into that a little bit in terms of 
maybe what tenofovir might do. So that's a tease for our next section. Um, well, that's obviously a, a hotly debated issue. And, you know, we've right. been through that with uh, uh, lopinavir. There's data about other, right. there is discussion about other things. But right. uh, the whole issue of immunosuppressed patients and whether, in fact, it's they have more severe COVID, uh, I think in most instances is still an unresolved issue with a few exceptions uh, about uh, people with specific immune defects. Yeah, and I think most of us are working from the, premise that there's not much difference. Uh, that may change with more data. But right now, it appears that the outcomes will, on somebody on antiretroviral therapy who gets COVID, that the outcomes are quite similar to those non-HIV-infected individuals. Um, uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that in the PrEP situation coming up. Um, what about high-dose liposomal amphotericin B as a relevant option in place of the two-week induction? Um, Short course, course, high dose liposomal A and B. Yeah, I mean, there are there are trials in Africa with one week of liposomal amphotericin. Whether or not there's really any advantage in the United States of trying another regimen, I think is uh, is unclear because two weeks is well tolerated in most situations. Uh, uh, there are the resources to give two weeks. So we have a lot of experience with that with 5-FC. I think if you're in a situation, again, where you have trouble administering it, where you don't have 5-FC, there may be reasons to look for other options. Uh, but I think it's hard to know how relevant that is to the U.S. Right. Okay. Um, if it's all right with the audience, I'll just call out the name of the person who's asking the question. Hopefully that's okay. Um, so one of the... Uh, uh, Sarah Beck was asking about drug-drug interactions with ARVs regarding uh, the treatment of a positive uh, PPD. You mentioned the rifapentin, and yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think in a way you have to look up uh, each of these because there are two problems. One is these drugs that these um, uh, rifampin and rifapentin have a number of drug-drug interactions, but also a number of these regimens have only been studied in the setting of certain antiretrovirals. So, you know, the approval is generally based on what populations are being studied. And again, if they've only, if a regimen, for instance, has only been studied with the fabrins, it would be nice to know not just the drug-drug interactions, but have some clinical experience. I think that is a limitation with the rifapentine right. as well as the rifampin-based regimens. Right. And when in doubt, the there's a University of Liverpool drug-drug interaction um, uh, charts that you can go to. It's online. I, I use it all the time and because I can't keep in my head all the drug-drug interactions. So I think when we're in clinic, just go to the Liverpool, uh, University of Liverpool drug-drug interaction for HIV and hepatitis, and you can get that. Time is moving quickly. Let me uh, just make a quick comment about crypto again and the 400 versus 800 maintenance. Um, back in the day, we didn't have antiretroviral therapy to speak of. And so all those early studies that showed it worked uh, was in the absence of ARV therapy. We typically start that a little bit later for crypto than we do. We don't like, it's not like PJP where we start immediately. Um, but what I found with 800 milligrams uh, is that there was a lot of nausea. I mean, a whole lot of nausea. So I don't know how much that's appearing in some of these studies, but that was one, um, one concern. Uh, Sarah Beck had another question about that in terms of length of Length of treatment 
for primary prophylaxis with fluconazole after uh, an episode. So somebody had it, you have them on ARVs, they're on fluconazole sort of in, on an indefinite period. Henry, what are your stopping rules for when it's okay to stop the fluconazole? You know, one of the limitations we have is a lot of the studies were done before we had effective antiretrovirals. So, again, the guidelines would say you have to be on at least 52 weeks of uh, therapy. But I'm not sure that that's based, or I know that that's not based on data in the current era with effective uh, antiretrovirals. So I think that would be the standard. But whether that's necessary, I don't know. I guess I'd bring that back to you, uh, Mike, and say, how long do you treat it? Usually I follow the CD4 count, and as it goes above 100, uh, I typically wait, while the viral load is suppressed, uh, wait at least six months uh, for that to, situation, and then it's pretty safe to stop. It's it's an art, not a science at this point, as you point out, but the OI guidelines has has this laid out uh, pretty well. Two yeah, I mean, again, again, again one of the, one of the, I was just going to say, one of the problems with the antiretroviral guidelines is that Again, as I mentioned, most of these studies have not been repeated for obvious reasons in the last 15 years. So it's hard to know how many are relevant. It's hard, it's hard to really believe that your CD4 count goes up and your viral load is down, presumably at the same time. Uh, you need to continue to suppress, but there just isn't data. Right. Uh, just real quickly from David uh, Hardy, he's asking about uh, not switching from AMFOB and 5FC, uh, is there any situation where you would continue that beyond just the uh, the two-week time period? Well, again, I think that gets into it being an art, not a science. I think there's some people, if if you knew right away that your two-week spinal fluid was positive, which almost never do you really know, uh, some people would, well, not some people, you should extend that uh, uh, past that. But in the absence of that, uh, you know, I think there are many, we've certainly seen patients here where uh, patients are not doing well, however you want, you want to define that, two weeks, so they get a longer course. But I don't know of any rules other yeah. than the fact that having a positive culture is an indication. Right, and, and, and it, it gets convoluted because a lot of people won't repeat the LP to see the culture still positive, and it takes a week, and so now you're into week three, and it, it's very difficult. So most people just at two weeks stop the Info5FC, switch over to fluconazole, and we're usually using 400. Quickly, there's some follow-up questions on the CD4 count. If it goes above 100, what if it drifts back down? If the viral load is suppressed, that's the key thing. A lot of people don't have a drift back down. If they do, it's kind of just a lab fluctuation. So I would say um, you monitor it carefully. If it's going between uh, 105 and 95, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call that. But usually as it's going up, it keeps going up. Um, but the undetectable viral load is the key because the virus is the thing that's immunosuppressive, and that's, that's really where uh, the function of the immune system is disturbed is mostly by the high-volume a virus that's circulating and creates immunodeficiency. Well, thank you, Henry. That was great. We're going to move on to our prep panel.